direct your attention this morning to this chapter that we've just read. We come in our exposition to Hebrews chapter 10, and we'll be considering verses 19 to 22. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 22, begins with these words, having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiness by the blood of Jesus. The book of Hebrews is neatly divided into two parts, two sections, if you will. And this morning we come to the beginning of that second part, which begins in chapter 10 at verse 19. The division reflects generally the fact that the first part of the book is devoted primarily to doctrine, and the second part of the book is devoted primarily to application. And we see this elsewhere in our Bibles. When we were preaching through Romans, we saw chapters 1 to 11, substantial doctrine. Chapter 12 and following, the application of that doctrine. When I was preaching many moons ago, through Ephesians, we saw the same. Chapters 1 to 3, substantial doctrine. 4 to 6, the application of that doctrine. And so it's not unusual to see this in the book of Hebrews as well. And this underlines, you'll note the quote in the bulletin from Rabbi Duncan regarding Jonathan Edwards, that all of his doctrine was application and all of his application was doctrine that actually reflects the Bible. Because doctrine is unto godliness, as we read both in Timothy and Titus, that this is a note that the Bible strikes. We need to be furnished with substantial truth in order to be changed and transformed into into the likeness of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. So if we think of the book as a whole, you have the first part in doctrine that could be summarized in chiefly setting forth the supremacy and superiority of the Lord Jesus Christ and the glory of Christ over all others and over everything else, so that he is the great high priest and his sacrifice is the once and final sacrifice for the sins of his people. If we think of the application, you know, where, where does this take us, among other things? The overarching call in the second part of the book is to persevering faith. So you'll see these two intertwined, the call to faith and the call uh, to, to perseverance. So we come now to chapter 10, verse 19. If you look ahead a little bit beyond our, our text, you'll see the next section really has three exhortations. It stands out to you when you're reading, when you're reading through this because each begin with the words, let us. Right? There are these three exhortations. Let us draw near with full assurance of faith. Verse 22. Secondly, let us hold fast. Hold fast to what? A profession of hope. Verse 23. And then thirdly, let us consider one another to provoke one another unto love, verse 24. Well, if you, if you look at them together, what do, you, what do you discover? You discover a familiar triad, faith, hope, and love in that order laid out in, this, in this, this passage. It's reminiscent, of course, of the end of 1 Corinthians 13. There's a call, an exhortation to faith, hope, and love. We're, we're considering this morning, with the Lord's help, the first of those, uh, this call to faith, to draw near with full assurance of, of faith. And the title of our sermon is 
open entrance, an open entrance. And this is what the passage is telling us, that there is an open entrance that has been given. Therefore, let us draw near. So we're going to note three things this morning as we work our way through these handful of verses. First of all, we begin with the capability to draw near. So first of all, the capability to draw near. Verse 19, having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Now, this is remarkably set in contrast to where the natural man, every sinner, finds themselves. Because the sinner finds themselves in a condition where they draw away from the Lord. Remember the language of Peter, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Or you think of the language of those on the last day who flee from the face of the wrath of, of the Lamb. However, in the gospel, those who were once far off are brought nigh. They're brought nigh. And so the believer has, we're told, liberty to enter God's presence as true worshipers. How? The text says, by the blood, the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. No one can come to the Father but by him, but by Christ, and through his shed blood. Right? It's speaking about entering into the holiest. We've seen now a great deal about this, the two chambers in the tabernacle and how it's been used in the book of Hebrews. The holiest is the most holy place or the holy of holies, right? That symbol of the inner sanctum of God's presence where God dwells in heaven, a picture of, of all of that. And you'll remember how in the last chapter we saw in verse 24, for Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. So you come to chapter 10, verse 19, and you can tie it back to chapter 9, verse 12, because there it says, neither by the blood of, of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place. So Christ, by his blood, has entered into the holiest place, and now we are being told that we're capable, those who are in a state of grace, to also, by his blood, enter into the most holy place, enter into the very presence of God. And this is not just a reference to the fact that the believer, when they die, are given access or entrance into heaven at that point. That is true, and that flows from this text. But that's not all that's true. Because it's speaking about the fact that we have access right here and right now. That we have access into the very throne room of heaven our prayer, in our prayers and in our worship. So that the worship which is transpiring in this auditorium this morning is actually taking place before the very presence of God in heaven. Before his very throne. There is access uh, to that throne. And it says here... In verse 19, having therefore, brethren, boldness, boldness, literally, this, this could also be translating, having boldness for entrance, having boldness for entrance. In other words, the emphasis here falls on the right of entrance. 
It's the right of entrance. So we're talking about something objective, something outside of ourselves. We're not talking about something subjective regarding the condition of our own hearts. He's saying by the blood of Jesus that the Christian has a title to the entrance into the most holy place. So you think you go to a closing on a house and you fill out all the paperwork, you pay the money, all the legal documents are done and so on and so forth. You have a title, you have a deed to that house and a key. And you're able to then drive to the house and you don't have to sit outside and you don't have to, you know, wonder whether you're allowed to go in. You don't have to have an invitation. You don't have to jump through other hoops. You've got the deed. You've got the title. You've got the key. You're able to just walk right in, open the door and meander through the house as you please. It's yours. You have the right to it. And this is what's being emphasized here with regards to this boldness, this liberty that is given to the believer and the temptation, of course, for all of us is to say, yes, but the, the law requires terms of access, that the law requires that we have clean hands and a pure heart and all sorts of other things. And the law requires these things. And what verse 19 is saying is that the meritorious cause, the meritorious cause, the merit that enables the believer to enter in is Christ's blood. Christ's blood procures the entrance. His atoning sacrifice, his death fulfilled the demands of all that the law requires. And God is satisfied with him. And therefore, we have boldness and liberty by the grace of God to enter into the very holiest of all places, to do so with boldness. You think of the difference between uh, a child who's unfamiliar to, to a man. You know, you might, you might see a child in the store and say, hello, little, you know, little boy, hello, young man, or whatever. And they may, you know, uh, duck behind their, their parents, hide behind them, be pensive, you know, cautious, withdraw, look away, and so on, right? You're a stranger, you're unfamiliar to them. And there's all of the natural reaction to that. You hold that in one side and then you put in contrast your own child, right? Your, your own child is bold in bounding up to you, right? They'll burst through the doors and say, daddy, see this, daddy, hear this, right? They'll climb up into the lab. They'll come in in the middle of other things and feel quite free to do so, right? This is the boldness, the liberty that the Lord is giving uh, to his people in, in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's describing what lies behind walking with the Lord, right? The Bible and the New Testament especially emphasizes or uses the language of the Christian's walk. And that walk is descriptive of their behavior, their conduct, their life. It is a walk with the Lord, a life spent with the Lord, not intermittently, not periodically or occasionally, but a life that is to be spent before his very face, a life that is to be spent in interchange and interaction and dependence upon him so that the Christian life is not reduced to merely 
filling in the boxes and checking, you know, ticking the very various points with regards to the assembling of a Christian worldview. This is what it means to be a Christian or to, you know, be concerned about what's going on in society or even concerned about what's going on in the church or even the practicalities of, of daily life and so on. At the heart of the Christian life is walking with Christ, walking in communion and fellowship with the Lord. And there is a capability to do that, a capability to draw near to him, to stay near him, to be with him, to walk with him in this world. John Owen said this, Christ is our best friend and ere long will be our only friend. I pray God with all my heart that I may be weary of everything else but converse and communion with him. The believer has this astonishing privilege. They have the capability to draw near to the living and true God, almighty God, the one who is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being. They are able to draw near to him. But then secondly, there is the confidence to draw near, the confidence to draw near. So we can speak about the right, the title, that has been procured through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, but we're not left there because the Lord knows how we are. The Lord knows the, the, the temptations and trembling and so on that goes on uh, within the souls of his, his people. And so he furnishes us with confidence, verses 20 and 21, by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say his flesh, and having an high priest over the house of God. What's happening here? The Lord is coming with comforts. See it. He's coming with incentives. He's coming with encouragements to convey confidence to draw near unto the Lord. He's saying a way has been prepared to draw near. And not only, but a guide to enable you to do so. Both of these things, both a way and a guide. He's saying the obstacles which have stood like Mount Everest in front of you, the obstacles have been removed. The path and has been cleared. The barriers have been broken. And the Lord gives the highest conceivable privilege to the sons of Adam. To fallen sinful men, the highest privilege ever. How many of you have been, had received a personal invitation to the Oval Office? None of you. How many of you have received a personal invitation to you know, meet with a monarch in some other country and so on? None of you. People would consider that a privilege, whether it is or not. But this is something far greater here we have the king of glory. Here we have the God of glory, the one who's created the entire universe by speaking it into existence over the course of six days. I mean, this is the God of glory. And he's saying we have the highest privilege possible given to us. And he would that, that the believing heart would be given confidence to draw near because there's all of those things that come. All of the whatabouts. You know, what about the fact that you have to have clean hands and a pure heart to ascend the holy hill of Zion? You know, what about that? I, I have dirty hands. I have an unclean heart. 
right? I'm defiled, I'm polluted, I'm stained, and so on and so forth. And the Lord is coming and he's saying, it's gone. I've, I've removed that. I've dealt with that. My son, through this new and living way, through the sacrifice of himself, through his blood, he's cleansed those sins that were formerly a barrier to prevent your access to the holy hill. You say, well, what about, what about the fact that, you know, you need the wedding garment and, and look, you know, our, our righteousnesses are as filthy rags and so on. And the Lord's coming and he's saying, it's done. I've provided out of my own resources, my own righteousness in the person of my son with which the believer is clothed. You're given access. The, the way has been opened. These obstacles have been removed. The law which condemns, has been satisfied in Christ. The curse of the law. Christ has become the curse for his people. And we could go on and on and on and on. The Lord says, I've removed these things. Christ is a new and living way. He's described here as a new and living way, a door. He says that himself elsewhere in John. I am the door. The Lord Jesus Christ is the gate. Think back with me, children. Where does the Bible begin? It begins with Adam in a garden who sins and falls and drags the whole human race with him. And he is driven by God out of the garden and the entrance is bolted shut with an angel and a flaming sword preventing any access into that former presence of, of the Lord. That's where the Bible begins, doesn't it? And yet here the Lord is coming and he's saying that, for, that flaming sword of justice has been quenched in the person of my son. He is the new and living way. He is the gate that has been thrown wide open. He is the new and living way. Notice the language that has been consecrated for us. He is what he is for needy sinners such as ourselves. In the Old Testament and all through that period to the days of our Lord, you could go into the holy place, not into the most holy place. You could go, the Levites could go into the holy place, they alone. And there they would see this ornate and enormous, heavy, beautiful curtain, a veil. And that spoke loudly to them. You're kept out. No access, no entrance here into the immediate presence or symbol of the immediate presence of Almighty God. And so they faced that continually. It was, it was driven into their consciousness. It molded them. It shaped them. The veil is shut. The way is shut. But here is a new and living way. I mean, it could be, could be even translated a newly slain and living way, right? Here you have one who is newly slain under the new covenant, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Here is something that is unprecedented. It's been prefigured for sure, as we've seen throughout the whole book of Hebrews. But now that has been accomplished once and for all. 
and it is fresh, it is new, it is, he is a new and living way. We're not talking about dead beasts anymore, the carcasses of, of bulls and goats, the blood of lambs, and so on and so forth. This is not a lifeless, he is not a lifeless way. There's vitality, there is vital power in the Lord Jesus Christ that actually leads to life so that he is the way, the truth, and the life all go together, that in coming to him and by him and through him as the way, we are led into life itself, eternal life. In him is found eternal life. He is the new and living way that's been consecrated or dedicated for us. In other words, all that God has designed, all that the Lord Jesus Christ has himself accomplished is exquisitely and perfectly fit for us. Tailor fit for precisely what we need. Meeting, answering, and providing for all that we could lack. And doing, and doing so at an astonishingly costly costly price in himself consecrated us for us through the veil that is to say his flesh the believer is taken through the veil his flesh his death his cross work his sacrifice christ as the sin bearer that's what's being set before us. He not only lived, he not only came as the incarnate word. He did so. He came as the God-man. And he lived here in this world. Impeccable. Perfection personified. But you know, that by itself would leave us still condemned. Here is one trotting the law of God in perfect conformity to God's will, holiness inside, outside, thoughts, words, actions, looks, everything about him is holiness. It must be so. He, he, is, he is obtaining a record of perfect righteousness on behalf of his people. But that by itself is not all that was necessary. He had to die. He had to offer himself as a sacrifice for sin. He had to be crucified for access to be possible. This veil had to be torn. This was the way. This is the confidence that God gives to us. He, he's removed the curse. And at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, there on Golgotha, on the hill of Calvary, and so on, in the offering up of himself, what happens, you know, God does a supernatural miracle. For the first time in the history of the world, the veil in the temple is torn wide open from top to bottom. And the holy place is exposed. From top, heaven, down. Ripped wide open by the hand of God himself. What's happening? Two things are happening. Christ, his flesh, 
right, being offered as a sacrifice, the veil being rent, these two things are connected and simultaneous. The Lord is imparting to the believer here confidence to draw near to the Lord. But there's more because we're not just left there. In verse 21, it says, and having a high priest over the house of God. Not only is he the way, and we should have confidence in who he is and what he's done in giving us a door through which to enter, but he is a guide. He's a guide as well. As well. Because you could think to yourself, and some perhaps do in different words, look, the way is kicked wide open. The door has been busted off of its hinges. All of the obstacles have been, have been removed. But here I am, and I am too weak to walk. A way is open, but no strength to enter it. I'm too weak to walk. What is he saying? And, he says, having a high priest over the house of God. Here is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who comes and takes the believer by the hand to lead them in, to draw them in, to carry them in, to bring them in. He who lives within the veil, he who is the one exalted in the sanctuary of heaven, he who is constantly and perpetually praying for each and every one of his own, interceding and mediating on their behalf. This is the one who comes as the guide to bring us inside. The Lord is saying, take confidence to draw near. I'll bring you, I'll lead you, I'll carry you. He is the great, the exceedingly great high priest of God. He who has entered himself, enables us to also enter by him and with him. Notice the, the language that's given in verse 21, and having a high priest over the house of God. He stands, he sits, he rules over the house. It's his house. He's the head. He's the Lord. He's the sovereign. He's the owner. He's the one who owns the house. He calls us to come. He makes, removes the obstacles. He opens the way. He draws us into his own place. It's his most holy place, first and foremost. And so it's all on behalf. Why is he there? Why has he passed through and into and above the highest heavens? He's done it on behalf of the Lord's people in order that he could bring them and draw them and assist them, that where he is, they might be also in their hearts in this world and in their persons entirely in the world to come. The Lord is here giving confidence and he's removing these various obstacles that we have not outside of us now, but inside of us, the apprehensions and misapprehensions that we often feel. He says, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he himself hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say his flesh, having 
and high priest over the house of God. Well, that brings us thirdly to the call to draw near. All of this is ramping up. All of this is building momentum. All of this is kind of putting the pieces in place in order for us then to receive the call itself, the call to draw near to him. Verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. There's a call, draw near. You know, this, this is actually a priestly act that's being described, isn't it? The priests were those who went into the holy place, and it was only the high priest, as you know well, once a year, on one day, Day of Atonement, who went into the most holy place, who drew near to the ark, symbol of God's throne and God's presence. But now this is something given by way of privilege to every single Christian. Every man, every woman, every, every believing boy, every believing girl. These are privileges that are given to all of those who are in union with the Lord Jesus Christ by, by faith. This is what the Reformation referred to as the, you know, the, the priesthood of all believers. There are privileges like this that are priestly privileges that extend into the, the far reaches of Zion, into every believing home and every believing heart. But here what's being described is not what's done with the feet, draw near. You say, okay, where? Where's the signs? Which direction do I go? What, you know, what do I do? It's speaking about the act of a heart, isn't it? It's speaking about the exercise of the soul. Drawing near is something that takes place with the soul in irresistibly being drawn to go to God in Christ so that our our souls are drawing near to him, right? To, to get into the holy place, to get, to use other language, under the stair, or to use other language, to be in the cleft of the rock, to ascend into heaven itself. You think of that language in the Psalms. I will go unto the altar of God, unto God my exceeding joy. Right, that sense of responsiveness, I will go. I'm going to go to the altar, to the throne, to God himself, my exceeding joy. But the passage makes clear this is not something that is just done with the lips. God spoke through Isaiah to, to his church in the Old Testament and said, you draw nigh unto me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. What does this passage say? Let us draw near with a true heart. Not just the lips, but with a true heart. Right? The Lord says to us, Son, give me thine heart. My son, give me thine heart. He wants the inward man. He wants the whole man. 
He wants, he is seeking, the Father is seeking those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. And so it's not just about outward performance. It's not just, well, okay, we got to draw near. That means we got to make sure we're in church twice in the Lord's day and on Wednesday night. It means we got to make sure that we're having family worship and got to make sure that we're doing our private worship and so on and so forth. Those things are right. Those are means that the Lord's appointed for drawing near to him. Not the only ones, but they are among the means through which we draw near to the Lord. But you can come up to the house of God and sit down in the pew without ever having drawn near. Right? You can, you can go through the outward performance. Is that where you find yourself this morning? Your backside is in the pew, but your heart could be a million miles away because it is. You're not actually drawing near with a true heart unto, unto the Lord. The Lord's saying, no, no, let us draw near with a true heart. He says a true heart in full assurance, in full assurance of faith, right? Here he's describing confidence, drawing nigh with a true heart, with confidence, given the boldness, the liberty that is procured and purchased by the person of, of the Lord Jesus Christ, there is to be confidence in drawing nigh to him with our hearts. And whatever the circumstances, without wavering, without doubting, right? This is not, this is not a confidence that is grounded in myself. You say to yourself, there are so many things that I am not confident about in myself. There's all sorts of things going on in my heart, in my life, in my mind, in my past, in my present. I have a great deal of unconfidence about what's going on inside me. That's not what the Lord's talking about. He's not saying draw near in confidence in your own faith. But he is saying, draw near with confidence on the merits of Jesus Christ alone. He, the blood of Jesus, the new and living way, the high priest over the house of God, hang everything, absolutely everything on this. On the merits of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The full assurance of faith is the resting and relying upon the Lord Jesus Christ. It is hanging everything on him and who he is and what he has done. Resting and relying upon the sacrifice and sufferings and the atoning work of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is where it's rooted in the promise of his person and of his, his work. You say, I can't do it. I hear you. I'm listening. Pastor, I understand the words that are coming out of your mouth. I can't do it. I can't draw near with a true heart. It's not, it's not me. I can't draw near with full assurance or confidence of faith. Well, my friend, if you can't come with these things, then come to the throne of grace for these things. 
If you can't come with them, then let us go to the throne for them. O oh, gracious God, give me a true heart. By the ministry and power of the Holy Spirit, Lord, grant to me the ability to draw near with full assurance of, of faith. We can go for them, can't we? He says, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts, right? Same thing. True heart is now speaking about these hearts, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. This helps flesh out and define what a true heart is, doesn't it? True heart is not one that is sinless. True heart is not one that is seamlessly consistent. True heart is not one that has reached a certain mark or level in terms of godliness and conformity uh, to, to the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. A true heart is defined in terms of being sprinkled from an evil conscience. It's a heart that's been sprinkled, right? That evil conscience, which is bent on evil, bent on everything that is opposed to, to the Lord himself. An evil conscience is one that accuses us of, of the guilt that we have for our sins, that testifies against us. And he's saying, yes, yes, that kind of heart is the kind of heart that in the gospel is sprinkled. It is sprinkled with the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The blood of the Lord Jesus Christ cleanses, it purges, it washes the conscience. What you could never do with all of your prayers and Bible reading and memorization and everything else and your charitable deeds and everything else that you might attempt to do in terms of consistent living, what you could never do in your, in your desire to scrub clean and scour the evil conscience, the Lord says, I've done. I do it in sprinkling with the blood of Jesus Christ. He has loved his people. He has loved them and washed them from their sins with his blood. Washed them with his blood. Right? This is the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is where, this is the fountain for sin and uncleanness that has been opened for poor, needy sinners. He says that, that there's also bodies washed with pure water. Think back to the Old Testament imagery, right? The priests had to do this. They had to wash themselves. They couldn't touch anything or do anything. They had to repeatedly wash themselves, cleanse themselves, and then engage in their duties and responsibilities of drawing near, offering sacrifice, entering the holy place, and so on and so forth. Yeah, every time they had to wash. I hear the Lord is saying, he does it. He washes with a pure water. He washes us with the water of his word. He washes us with the water of his grace. He washes us with the water of his Holy Spirit, of his blood, and so on. So that both inward man and outward man receive the saving benefits that have been purchased in the Lord Jesus Christ, both the heart and the body. Remember the language in, in 2 Corinthians 
uh, chapter 7, after Paul gives us a whole string of, of promises and setting forth the glory of God, he says in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 1, "...having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God." Here is the Lord saying, I come with the fresh application of cleansing. Yeah, the priests every time had to wash in entering. And he's saying, what I've provided and hold forth is that fresh application. When you come up to public worship, as you did this morning, to do so reverently, to do so believingly, to do so in a God-pleasing way, is to do so by these means, going to Christ for the fresh washing, the cleansing, coming up Mount Zion in dependence upon all that Jesus is and all that Jesus has done for your service of worship to be accepted before him, to, for your praise to reach heaven, for your prayers to pierce through the skies, for you to be able to hear and receive the word of the voice of God himself speaking to you in his word. It's all, it is all hangs, it all depends on this provision of being sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with, with pure water. In other words, this is the ongoing experience of the Christian, right? It's not just the sinner who's brought under conviction of sin brought by the Spirit to see the Savior, given faith to close with him in the gospel, to turn with repentance unto the living God, and so on. Right? At the time of conversion, it's an ongoing experience. Is our entrance ongoing? Yes. So these provisions are ongoing. It's something that is constant. And what that does is it reinforces for us and leads us to see how this underlines communion and fellowship with the Lord, right? This union, this communion and fellowship is constant with the Lord. That means all day, every day. It means all life, going to God in Christ, coming back to the Lord Jesus Christ, not just on occasions of urgent business, but in frequent visits, right? You run to the hospital in, a, in an urgent situation. You go to, the, you go to the, the house of a family member or friend just to be there, to be with them, to see them, to talk to them, to hear them, to spend time with them. This is the access that we have to live life with the Lord and before the Lord and thereby for the Lord, to the glory of, of the Lord. Right? This is the nature of all relationships, isn't it? Nearness. To have, to have a solid relationship means nearness with another person. Closeness, togetherness. Right? It's the opposite is hideous. A cold, a formal, a distant love. Think of a... Two spouses, a cold, formal, distant love? No, nearness. 
The Lord is describing this. He's saying we're given these privileges and he's provided all that's necessary for it to be brought to pass for his own praise and for his glory. And so here, you know, some of you are this morning, those of you who are unconverted, you're outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. You're like the prodigal who is in a, a far country, far removed through rebellion, disobedience, lawlessness, disregard, disinterest in the things of the Lord at times. Right? The Lord says, you're far off. And you think, what, what are you supposed to do? You know, what, what are you supposed to make of all of this? And for some of you, you can see, you can see yourself, you can see the sin. You're not, you're not saying, well, I'm just a good person, morally upright, there's no problems here, etc., etc. You even see the sins, which are barriers, and so on. The Lord is coming to you this morning, and he's saying, lift up your eyes, behold, everything that you've been hearing about, the glory of Jesus Christ, and the the fact that he is supreme above all others, everything you've heard about, about his priestly ministry, what that entails in his person and in the work that he's accomplished, everything you've heard about his definitive, permanent, fully sufficient sacrifice for sin, all of those things that you've heard about are leading you and driving you and drawing you to this same spot, right where the Lord has you this morning. So that God himself is coming to you and saying, look at my son. He's the door. He's the gate, the way. He's removed every conceivable obstacle. He's smoothed the path. He's flung open the gates. And he bids you to come. To draw near on his terms. To draw near on the basis of what he himself has accomplished. To say, look Everything depends on the fact that Jesus is the new and living way. Everything depends upon his shed blood. And I'm willing for it to be that way. Not to depend on me, but to depend on him. I am happy to be a poor beggar pleading the blood of the Lamb of God. This is what the Lord's calling you to. He's saying, draw near to him. Come to him, run to him, crawl to him, cry to him. Come, my dear friends, come unto the Lord Jesus Christ. And for those of you who are in a sound and saving condition, you think about this, this, this invisible act of the heart that's being described, this drawing near to the Lord. It's an invisible act of the heart, which means, you know what? This happens. This can happen. No, this should happen. When you're walking, when you're talking, when you're in the car, when you're in the store, when you're on a plane, when you're in the hospital, when you are sitting as you are right now under the preaching of the word of God. In all of these cases, and every other you can imagine, you have the priceless privilege of drawing near. Who would turn their face from this? Insanity. Who would neglect this? Who would diminish the significance of these privileges? Perish the thought that we do so. But rather having the Lord coming with that 
melting and overwhelming sense of privilege that our hearts would be drawn to him. That indeed, when we hear all that he, all that he has told us, that our hearts would be inclined to draw near to him every opportunity we can. We want to be near him, next to him. We want him set before us. We know that it's at his right hand that there are pleasures forevermore. We want communion and fellowship with him in our sorrows and in our triumphs. In all of the circumstances in which we find ourselves, my dear believing friends, the Lord is saying to you this morning, do it. Draw near. Draw near to him with a true heart. He tells us what we're able to do in verse 19. He tells us how we are able to do it in verses 21 and 22, and 20 and 21. But then in verse 22, he says, he calls us to do it, to draw near to him. May God grant us grace to do so. Let's pray. Almighty God in heaven, these indeed are precious and priceless privileges given to the most unworthy and unlikely of creatures. O oh Lord, raise our heads to heaven, enable us to behold them, and grant that we be drawn to them, grant that we be drawn to thee, that we would draw near with confidence in all that Christ is, and that we, O oh Lord, would find in this new and living way all that our hearts might desire. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.